If you want to turn your Bibles to Psalms 82, 83, and 84 is what we're going to go through today. And we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to spend time in your word. We've had our song and uh, prayer time, and we just pray, Lord, that your word would accomplish what it was set out to do, that it'd teach us and show us and uh, encourage us. Um, And sometimes it actually speaks for us. It it has the prayer and the concerns of our heart uh, just worded in such a way that uh, when we read it, we can see uh, the saints of old having the same heart and the same problems that we may have. And it's just nice to know that, um, well, that prayer has been offered before and that you've answered those prayers before. So we know that you'll answer them for us as well. And so God, we pray that you comfort us today in Jesus name. Amen. Psalm 82 is a plea for justice. And um, that is a, It's a very difficult thing in this world to have true justice, and we can't really expect true justice until Jesus comes, and we, as human beings, try to get as close as we can, but the closest we can get to true justice is if we follow God's example of that. He's given us Leviticus. He's given us Deuteronomy. He's given us things in the Old Testament to to show us as he writes the law, as much as we like to say we don't have the law anymore, um, we're not under the law anymore. We still understand his heart by reading it, uh, what his intent was, uh, what his expectations are, those kind of things. And so um, to, to, to know what true justice is, you really have to be a Christian. You do. You have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to, to truly know justice. Um, otherwise, you get a perverted view of it without Jesus. Um, sometimes we, we get the idea that thou shalt not judge, and, and that's true. The scriptures tell us that. Um, what is meant by that in Scripture is that we're not in the place of sentencing. Um, we, we don't have that kind of authority, although in Psalm 82 he does discuss that because the judges do have that authority. Certain people were given that authority to pass sentencing here on earth. But as individuals, we don't have that right to spiritually pass sentence upon somebody else. It doesn't mean that recognizing sin in their life is wrong. It just means I can't pass sentence that's up to God. He's the judge. He's the one that's going to look at their sin. It's obvious to all. It's written in scripture. There's nothing um, ambiguous about that. Um, It's the sentencing part that he doesn't want us to participate in. Um, He hasn't asked us to do that in many cases. So uh, when we look at justice, I've gone through many seasons in my life as far as justice is concerned, and I think that goes with age maybe. And maturity, knowledge, and I'm sure I'll be different 20 years from now. Um, I plan on it. Um, and as I grow older in the Lord, I think I, I know better and I understand better what I, what I didn't understand when I was young. Um, in our country, one of the greatest countries in the world, the greatest country in the world, I don't want to, we are, um, I truly believe that, um, we're moving away from those roots of Christianity and the natural consequences of doing that is to have more injustice in our country. And we have to be very careful about that as Christians because injustice can go two different ways. Injustice can be um, under monitoring other people, and it can also go in the way of over monitoring people. It's a very 
difficult line if you don't have Scripture to navigate. Um, when we look at Scripture, and I want to really focus on that because that'll give us not my opinion, but what God's Word says, there are, He gives us guidelines for passing guilt, the sentence of guilt upon somebody. For example, you have to have, you have, to have two witnesses, um, and they need to corroborate. They need to be, uh, have a similar story. You know, it doesn't have to be exact, but similar. And, um, and if you don't have those two witnesses, then you let it go. Um, and we don't like the idea of that. That guy I know did something wrong. I saw them, but did anybody see that? Um, no, nobody else was there. Nobody saw it. Sorry, that's not enough to convict. And here's why God says that is because we don't know if you personally have a vendetta against that person. We don't know if you're lying or not. We have to have that extra story to know that we've got two witnesses. And even then we have problems, but that's better than just the one person. And so God errs if he makes an error on the side of grace, always does. It is far better for people to... uh, get away with things and for a, a, an innocent person to be incarcerated. Okay. Always, 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 always. And we have to understand that's what God's word teaches. We, we let things go if we don't have enough. Okay. Um, it has to be that way. And in, in, in most of our court cases, we have it that way. In most of the situations we can see that. And that's why we're one of the greatest countries in the world, if not the greatest. But as we move away from that understanding of erring on the side of grace, erring on the side of letting a guilty person go as opposed to incarcerating an innocent person, um, we're going to find ourselves in overreaction, overwatching, over-observing people's lives. And I've, I, I didn't think much of it until I experienced it personally in my family's life. And... Um, you don't think about it. I remember the, do you remember the whole stop and frisk thing in New York? As a young guy, when that first came out, I was like, yeah, stop and frisk. That's a great idea. If you've got suspicion, just pull them over, frisk them, make sure there's no weapons and let them go on their way. If they don't have any weapons, what harm could there be in that? Because we're getting weapons off the street. That's a great thing. Most of them gang banger. You know how the mindset goes. Until it's your innocent kid who got pulled over violated, stopped and frisked, no weapon, no suspicion, just felt like doing it. And now you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, um, We have to be very careful about that. And so when the psalmist here writes this plea for justice, this has gone the other way, not over watching, but under watching to the point where there were bribes involved, which is it's all part of the same problem. Overwatching can be, or over um, monitoring, uh, puts us in the op- gives us the opportunity, or puts our puts our our hearts in the right place for Satan to really have his way uh, to bribe somebody. Because if it's dependent upon the person and not according not according to the law, but upon the person's feelings, now we can do whatever we want to do. Okay. That's why the law is so important. It's written down. It's absolute. It's said fast. Everybody has to follow it. Good guys and bad guys all have to follow the law. You know, that's why it's so important to have the written law. Well, they've gone far beyond that. They've gone to the point where there's a plea for justice. He says this in verse one, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And that word, there is other judges, little judges. If you didn't know, 
um, God has made in the past, and that's what the book of Judges is about, and also it, throughout history, even from Moses, we had people that were just set apart and given the authority by God to do what God would do from heaven, and that is to judge. Sorry, this thing's really bugging me. Um, to pass sentence, to look at a court case and make their, the decision is final based off of them. And that, that's a very uh, difficult role to be in and to, and to walk that line. Follow the law, do the best you can, but you, you, can't, you can't deviate from that or you'll find yourself in corruption either way. Letting people go or incarcerating innocent people because you can tell the feeling or the, the temperature of the room as a judge, that this is what everybody wants, so therefore let's just get this done, and I'm going to please a lot of people. Either way, let them go or incarcerate them. Um, the actual crime and the actual guilt isn't of any consequence. And so he's concerned. You're the judge of all these little gods, these little judges. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, God is the one watching over these judges, but this psalmist here, Asaph, is looking at the world and saying, when are you going to step in and judge these judges who aren't doing their job appropriately, who aren't um, doing what your word says? They've taken this role and responsibility and perverted it or allowed it to be perverted in their lives. Defend the poor and fatherless. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. That's what's required of the judge. We're supposed to be watching for mainly oppression. Yes, there is the needy and there is the poor who do result in, you know, uh, succumb to crime to meet their own needs as opposed to trusting in the Lord. Of course, that needs to be uh, punished as well, but that doesn't seem to be the case in the nation of Israel at this time. They're being um, underwatched. Uh, the, the, the oppressors are allowed to oppress um, Well, probably because they're rich and influential. It's a very dangerous place to be. And so this poor guy, Asaph, I mean, we don't really know. I mean, he's in the king's palace, so he's not exactly poor. Um, But he has the same heart as this just king, David. And he's looking at the world and he's saying, I'm not seeing the judges do what they're supposed to be doing. You can clearly see it. Um, Sometimes it's not obvious. But apparently it's so obvious that he's able to write a song about it. You know, I have to be very careful about that. Our feelings and emotions as Christians shouldn't play any part in these things. It's a very dangerous thing to be ruled by your emotions. And, and, and there's no one else to talk to about this other than us. You can talk to the world about what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to act, and what the law says. But the world is, by definition, the scriptures tell us they're worldly. They're ruled by their emotions. They're never going to get it right. They'll get it right when their emotions line up. But if their emotions don't line up that day, then they'll get it wrong. And as Christians, we're to be in charge and in control of our emotions and our faculties, our minds, our hearts are to be ruled and governed by God's word. And so we're the only ones that can do anything about this justice thing in this world. The rest of the world doesn't understand it. They won't get it. Um, It's a very difficult line. I understand that role. I think of Tanner going through the school that you're going through and all and the classes that you're going through. And 
there's a lot of bravado in that. There's a lot of testosterone <laughs> and estrogen. Don't get me wrong, but it's <laughs> uh, there can be a lot of emotion involved in with that kind of power, and um, that has to be ruled. It has to be governed, and that's why God gave us the laws to govern and to watch over and to keep us in check. Well, it's not happening in Israel. The writer's upset about it, and he's asking God, the only one that can do anything about it, to step in and to judge these judges. Verse 5, these judges do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are are unstable. I said, God says, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So the writer here is looking for the true justice, the great white throne justice that's going to take place when everything is going to be open and naked and obvious. Okay, And it isn't right now. It just isn't. We suspect and we get our own ideas and we evaluate evidence. Um, And if our emotions aren't in check, we can let some of the blind spots of a case um, cause us to just lean in a certain direction because we just know. We just know they're guilty. We can't be ruled that way as Christians. We're not allowed to do that with each other. We're not allowed to do that in this world. We're called to be the opposite of that. We're supposed to be in control of these things. So when he says, you guys have been given the authority here in verse 6, you are gods, you are judges, and all of you are children of the Most High, that's, that's true. He follows up with, you shall die like men. Every one of you will stand before my judgment seat. No one's above that. And fall like one of the princes. No one avoids that death of everlasting life, but we do have that death. Here's where I think as Christians we can really get a good understanding of this, and hopefully I'll be able to word this correctly. It's, it's not an easy concept for me to get out of my head and, and verbalize. Um, the cross and understanding the cross of Jesus Christ is very important for the Christian. Uh, I think we all get it. I believe on the cross. We don't quite understand the mechanics of how it works. Um, but we can't ever forget that justice was served. My sin deserved a penalty, and that penalty was sentenced and given to Jesus Christ, and he paid for that. The idea that I plead the blood of Jesus over my life doesn't mean that I plead the let me out of this, let me out of the responsibility of my actions, let me not have any sentence for my sin. No, no, no. The sentence wasn't uh, put away. The sentence was placed upon Jesus and all justice was poured out on him. So every sin I ever commit does go through the court process. It's just such a fast process. We don't think about it all the time, but my sin every single day goes through that court process of the Lord's court and is placed upon Jesus Christ at the cross. He endured every sin that was ever committed by every single human being, past, present, and future, at that one point in time at the cross. You can understand the weight and why he was sweating blood the night before. Now, we don't understand how that works necessarily, how the propitiation, you know, 
works, how that ability to have Christ's righteousness imputed to us and him, our guilt being imputed to him, exactly how that works. But it does, and that's the fact, and that's how God lays it out. Every one of our sins is paid for. Every one of our sins had a sentence that was paid. And for us to cry out for this justice, um, we, we need to understand that when we look at the criminal or when we look at the innocent or we look at ourselves, this is where I'm having a difficult time getting it out and verbalizing it, but um, if at any point in time that criminal receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, every, everything he got away with or everything he got caught with was at the cross with him. He's as innocent as I am, or as you are at that point. He's as guilt-free. He has no record. It's all been taken care of, you know. Um, And that has to be understood by us. When we ask for true justice, the greatest thing we can do is to save that person, to teach that person about Jesus Christ and lead them to the Lord. Now, He's tired of seeing wickedness win in the world. And I think we all are too. And it, and it is getting worse, unfortunately, because the, the ones that were supposed to be in control of their faculties and in, in control of their spirit, that, that's one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. They don't have it anymore. Okay. So when we ask for a, for a Supreme Court justice to be nominated, and they claim to be Christian. And please understand this. Everybody claims to be Christian. Does not mean that they are. What we're looking for as Christians is a born-again believer who understands the blood of Jesus Christ, who understands the forgiveness of sins, who understands these things, because they can judge correctly. But someone who doesn't understand the blood of Jesus Christ, who doesn't understand the cross completely, um, and I'll put a fine point on it, believes in purgatory, believes in um, venial sins versus mortal sins, those kind of things, isn't going to judge correctly all the time because they don't understand the blood. They don't understand Jesus. Neither will a police officer, neither will a court circuit judge, neither will a prosecutor, neither will a, you know, a defendant's attorney. Um, they won't understand what's happening here. And I think as we see the world move away from Christianity and move into the worldly, we're going to get a version of a conservative justice and a liberal justice system, and both are going to be wrong because they're not governed by the law of God and because they're not governed by Jesus Christ. So I, I know it's a lot for the first Psalm, but keep that in mind because we have to have our minds right on this. We have to be able to watch Fox News and you know CNN and be able to discern the difference and if we've got born, non-born-again believers on either channel, we're not going to get accuracy, okay? Um, we've got to know God's Word so that we can have a balanced heart and a balanced mind and understand um, how things go. And I, I say that because I know that <laughs> that could be detrimental to a church to talk like that. If we're a conservative church and everybody listens to Fox and I've offended you, and if you're a liberal and you're at our church and you watch CNN, then I've offended you. So we've pretty much offended everybody uh, this morning. Um, well, that we're equal, equal opportunity offenders here at Calvary. I just want to make sure. Um, because we're above it. 
We are above it as Christians. And we've got to understand that. We are above these things. We are called to be the men and women on this earth that are salt and light for God's kingdom here. And whoever gets it wrong should hear from us. We've got to be that in that position and understand your position. We don't get swayed by them. We sway. We're an authority. God's given us that authority. We're the only ones with clear minds and clear hearts. We're the only ones that understand the blood of Jesus Christ and grace and mercy and the balance of justice because we've been incarcerated by Satan in bondage to our sin, and we've been set free because the bondage and the penalty for our sin has been paid for by Christ, and we're far better at getting the speck out of people's eyes because we understand the pain that was involved to get the plank out of our own. And that's why we can have that balance, but we've got to be there in our hearts. So I'm all for crying out for true justice, but keep in mind what true justice is. It is not stop and frisk. And nor is it let everybody out of prison because, well, we just don't have room for them either. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. Okay? We need to find that balance. Psalm 83. Do not keep silent, O God. He's frustrated with the fact that there is a Confederate conspiracy against the people of Israel. He can see the world aligning against um, to coming together, aligning themselves to come against God's people, and he's not happy about it. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, or they're stirring things up out there. And that is the first step to causing a nation to fall, is to destabilize. And those who hate you have lifted up their heads. They've exalted themselves in the midst of this. That's the second phase. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Remember their goal. That's very important. It's amazing how many enemies who would normally be fighting each other, if they have their a common enemy, they can come together. Um, and And, you know... As, as Christians, as born-again believers, not in name only, you know, if you're a Christian here this morning who just says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you don't have a heart to worship, you don't have a desire to pursue God in your life, and you're not striving for righteousness, and you're not reading His Word and all these things, you need to check your relationship with God as whether it's real or not. Um, because there is no such thing as having a relationship with God and not caring about righteousness and not concerning yourself with your sin and how that needs to be eradicated from your life. But as born-again believers, um, the world, no matter what their uh, ideological differences might be, worldly people will band together for the purpose of removing the one that brings conviction, the one who's bringing salt, the one who's bringing light. If you're a judge, as in 82, verse eight, or, you know, Psalm 82, and you like the darkness, which was what was uh, claimed, you, know, you walk around in darkness as your choice, then you don't want light. You know, um, you want to be right, you want to be popular, but you don't want light in your life. Um, This is what's happening here. The nation of Israel is God's chosen people, and their enemies have come together to stir things up, to exalt themselves above, and then also to completely wipe them off the face of the earth. That's their heart. And that's always been the heart of anti-Semitism. Always. Always. Here's Here's what we have to struggle with. 
um, with anti-Semitism. Um, because Israel's not always right. They're not. I mean, I love Israel, and I support them as a nation and God's chosen people, but that's why I support them. It isn't because they're always correct about everything. You know, um, They're a very liberal country in many ways, if you didn't know. You know, um, in fact, most, most people in Israel don't go to synagogue on Saturday. Most don't have a relationship with God. Um, so that being said, as a Christian, I'm called to support Israel and to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's irrespective of whether they're doing what they're supposed to be doing with God. Um, and there's a reason for that. God wants us to support them because he's said so, not because they're worthy of the support. I'm called to be Jenny's husband, regardless of whether she's worthy of me. She, you know, I'm, I'll stop there. I was just going to be funny, but it's not funny. She's, let's turn it around. That'd be easier to make fun of myself. She's required to be my wife and to respect me as a husband, regardless of whether I've earned that respect that day or that 24 hour period. She's called to that by God because He's asked her to. He's commanded her to. See, that's where that comes from. And then we're not moved by feelings and emotions. We're ruled by what we said in Psalm 82. What's written? What does God say? How am I supposed to be as a wife today? How am I supposed to be as a husband today? How am I supposed to be as a parent today? How am I supposed to be as a child today? The law says, Scripture says, you honor your father and mother. Even on the days they're not exactly worthy of or living an honorable life. We're called to that because that's pleasing to God because he sees it as, an, as obedience to him. So as the nation of Israel here may be going into captivity, may be going to Babylon, there may be a lot of sin involved. His cry for God to come against the enemies is understandable. And we have to be on their side. We choose to be because God tells us to. Moses didn't do everything right all the time. And yet he was the chosen leader of Israel to lead them. He didn't have a day-to-day perfect walk with the Lord. He had many times when he was striking the rock when he shouldn't have struck the rock. And God held him accountable to that. But Korah, who's going to write, his kids are going to write Psalm 84 here. It's our last psalm for today. Korah saw the fault in Moses' leadership and decided that he was going to take over, but hadn't been called by God to do so. And that's error on his part. God took care of Moses to the point where he said, Moses, you don't get to go into the promised land. That's a pretty heavy, heavy thing. Moses, of all the people that you thought would get into the promised land, would be the leader that led them out of Egypt, but he doesn't get to go. Because of his misrepresentation of God to the people. But neither did Korah. Korah got swallowed up by the earth for just coming against the guy who was wrong sometimes, you see. Now, we go over this because this is very important for us to understand leadership, authority, and what God's word says. And it sets us up for success in our walk with the Lord. When we obey God's word, above all, above the emotions of the day, among, above the uh, attitudes of the people we're interacting with each day. When we m- put God's word here, way above all of that, and obey it and him, we're set up for success down here. We're set up for successful marriages. We're set up for successful parenting, 
successful, uh, humble children growing up in the admonition of the Lord. We're set up for a, a really great society. We really are. It's when we don't let God's word rule in our lives and we're ruled by our emotions like the world, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. And so he's upset about this conspiracy. So he's going to name names. Verse 5, for they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. See how he, you see how he words that? Just what I said. It's not a conspiracy against Israel, although it is. It's considered a conspiracy against God. You see, because God has said that he has chosen Israel. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagrites, uh, Gibal, Ammon, the Am- Amalek, Philistia, but the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Deal with them as with Midian, as with uh, uh, Sisera. As with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. Yes, all these princes like Zeba and Zolmuna, who said, this is what he said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God uh, for a possession. So he names these, uh, you know, these names, these victories in the past over enemies. And he calls the victories not by the victor, like the victor's name, because of course God's the victor. Um, but he calls it, he remembers the remembrance stones. We talk about those sometimes. The names written on the remembrance stones are the fallen enemies. You know, I like that he does that. I have, I have a list in my Bible and in my head of all the things that have happened and, and how God has stepped in and, and helped me, you know. Um, it's my own list and, you know, different names on different rocks in my life, you know. Um, and so I appreciate this. I understand that the Cicero one has always been a favorite of mine. You can look that up. That's in, um, let's see, that's in Judges chapter 4. Uh, but I want to read it today. But Cicero was a guy that wanted to come against them and was getting defeated in battle and ended up in a tent and uh, a woman lured him in, in the sense that she gave him some milk to, 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 because he was hungry and in the battle and all. And he, he, you know, he got that warm, fuzzy feeling when you drink warm milk and fell asleep. And she takes a tent peg and drives it all the way through his head into the, into the sand. And uh, I smile at that because can you imagine being in that position by yourself as a woman in your home and have this fugitive coming off the battlefield, running to your tent, and have that kind of presence of mind? People say, "Here, have some milk," you know. <laughs> with the intent of knowing what you were going to do once he fell asleep and then following through on that, you know, not a squeamish gal, um, to say the least. And man, <laughs> imagine your husband coming home and say, Oh, sleep with one eye open, you know, kind of thing. These are all enemies of God in the past. And what the writer here is asking is, I want you to deal with these new enemies the way you've done in the past for us. Now, the reason God isn't necessarily doing it is because he's using these enemies to teach Israel a lesson. They're always pawns in God's hand. Um, It's not that he's on their side. They're just useful at that moment. And when their use is over, he will exact judgment upon them. He does. But only after that use is accomplished. And so he does. I mean, he, he's crying out. This, this is his job. 
um, as, a, as a writer, as a psalmist, uh, as, as someone who's in the king's household, that's his job is to write these things. That's his role. I support Israel. I hate all the enemies of God. I'm walking with the Lord. You knew he was. Maybe not everybody in the nation was. Most of the nation wasn't, but we are. And so he writes a honest psalm, take care of these enemies. Now, God doesn't necessarily respond and say, I will, I will, I will, as soon as I'm done teaching you all a lesson. Um, but he does what he's called to do, which helps us in our prayer life. Sometimes I think we read prayers like this, because that's what this is. And we have situations in our own life where we're like, okay, God, you know, I don't know what you're doing. And then we try to figure out what God's doing. You know, okay, God, I think you're trying to bring them to the end of themselves. So I don't think I'm supposed to pray for them to get out of this trouble because you're using it. You know, you go through that gymnastics in your mind. You're not the only one that does that. Everybody does that. We don't have to. I think the writer here gives us a great example that I don't have to go through those gymnastics and try to figure out what God's doing and then pray according. I'm going to pray what God's called me to pray, not knowing the circumstances in the spiritual, not knowing what's going on behind the scenes. God, I pray that you would get them out of this. I pray that you would uh, deliver them. I pray that they would be healed. I don't have to pray. I pray that they'd be healed. Unless you're trying to teach them a lesson, then get them, God. Smite them with more cancer. No, no, no. I don't have to do that. I just pray for them to be healed. Now, God can discern between my prayer by the Holy Spirit and his ears how he wants to answer that, when he wants to answer that. You know? I don't have to concern myself with trying to get it right. We love to get it right. You know? We love to be little prophets. I, did anybody watch the, the election uh, you know, things coming out? You know, the, the election watch, you know, 2023, a balance in power, 2022, balance in power, whatever. And you know what to expect. That's all they do all night is try to get ahead of, of when it actually happens. We're going to predict. We're going to call. We're going to... Now, it hasn't been done yet, but it, it's, it's, that's all they care about is I just... I just want to, I want to tell people before it actually happens, and we can do the same thing in our own lives in little micro areas, you know? Oh, I knew that was going to happen. Didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? We do that for pregnancy. Every pregnancy. Every one of them. I think it's a boy. Mm, you know? What do you think it is? I think it's a girl. You want to place bets? You want to, did you hold a coin over her stomach? Did it turn counterclockwise? Voodoo. Witchcraft. I'm kidding. Who cares? You know? We just like to be right. You got a 50-50 shot, you know? And so when the baby comes out and it's, it's blue or it's pink or whatever we decided or whatever happened, you know, I was right. <laughs> you, you weren't right. You got lucky. You just guessed. I, I could guess boy on Monday and girl on Tuesday, and I'm going to be right. Both, I, I'm right. We love that. When I pray, I don't have to do that with God. None of us do. I can just pray for the person, for them. If I'm wrong and I shouldn't be praying for them, then don't answer my prayer. I'm going to pray for people with grace and mercy, with love and compassion and a heart for them, for their souls, because eternity is at stake, and I'm just pray for them. When I pray for people, not against them, when I pray for them, my heart changes towards them. When I don't pray against my wife or against my husband, I pray for my husband or for my wife. My heart changes. That comes across in our everyday conversations, not just in our prayer and in our heart, but in our lips and in our minds. We begin to change and our attitude changes towards each other. 
There's so much grace and mercy coming off of our lips that wouldn't normally be there if we were praying against. Because we're looking at them saying, has God got them yet? Did he, did, he, did he convict them yet of that sin that I notice every day, you know, kind of thing? And that's how the conversation goes every single day. And it looks like your wife's mad at you all the time or your husband's mad at you all the time. Change that prayer around. Pray for them. Pray for your kids. Pray blessings over their head. I love that, you know. Sometimes you read through the Old Testament, you see these guys pronouncing blessings upon their kids and laying hands and the, the weird thing with the hand under the thigh. We're not exactly sure what's going on there, but that's what happens. Put your hand under my thigh and I shall bless you. Okay, you know, I don't quite get that. But these old guys dying, just pronouncing blessings over their kids and praying for them, you know. Some of them were prophetic and a little not so great, you know, but God did that. That wasn't him. God put those lips, put those words in his mouth. Pray for people. Verse 13, oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods, and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest, and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish, that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most most high over all the earth. He's just going to pray for Israel. Regardless of whether they deserve this conspiracy and confederation against them, I'm praying for them. I pray that you get these guys saved that are coming against Israel. I pray they'd seek your face by the this great prayer. You know, Psalm 84. Beautiful psalm, a psalm of praise. And it talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord, which is where we are this morning. You're in the right place this morning. In fact, in this psalm, he likens finding yourself at church in the house of the Lord with other people as being in a nest, as being in God's nest. I love that. Verse 1, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. To find yourself in the place of God at his altar, whether that's at home in your quiet times or in prayer or here at the church or uh, with other brothers and sisters at Bible studies or whatever it is that you come together for, it's just a, it's a beautiful place of, of being in a nest. Is how he describes it. It's home. I see these young families, and when I see them seeking after God diligently, they're making a pilgrimage. We'll read about that in verse 5 here. They're making a pilgrimage of their life to find out the will of God in their life. Oh, that's a great nest to be in. These young families that are choosing that, these young couples that are choosing that, anybody that chooses that pilgrimage is finding themselves in the best place they could possibly be in this world. This world is dangerous, and it's full of, of, of things that want to eat you, you know, they want to kill you out there. The safest place you can be is in God's nest. Just have that, that desire in your life. And, and he's just crying out, God, it's no better place for me. I, I'm so satisfied in your nest. I'm so satisfied at your altars. I'm so satisfied in your presence. It's a beautiful place for our hearts, for our souls, for our spirit. It's a great place for healing. It's a wonderful place of rest. You're constantly protected because 
You know, God likens himself to a, as a hen, and he's just nestled over the top of you like that. You know, you, nothing can harm you there. It's warm, it's safe. Um, and he says, it's a great place to be. Verse five, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. I love that. We don't ever get there till we get there. You know, my whole life is a pilgrimage. And I've gone through seasons. I can see them now. I think when you're in season one, you don't realize you're going through seasons. You think you've done it, you know? And then you hit season two, and you're like, oh, well, now I've done it. And then by the time season three or four in your life of walking with the Lord hits, you're like, oh, this is always, isn't it? You know, there's another one coming. I'm not so foolish as to not know that the 60, when I'm 60 and plus is going to be different than when I'm 50 plus. You know, and when I'm 80 plus, I'm going to be a whole different person. It's a lifetime away. I've been walking with the Lord for 30 years, so I'm, I'm 50 now. So when I'm 80, that's a whole nother 30 years of walking with the Lord. Imagine where I'll be. I won't be here. I'll be so much closer, so much, I hope, you know, if I stay there. It's a pilgrimage. Keep walking. Keep walking towards the Lord. Keep walking towards the cross. Stay in constant fellowship. Make it your pilgrimage of your, li- pilgrimage of your life. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. As you walk, you leave a wake of beauty behind you as you make pilgrimage to God. It may not be the best, you know. I look back, I've got a lot of regrets in my life as a, as a Christian man. But I've also left a lot of good, I've got some heritage behind me too. Some things I'm proud of being a part of, you know. Um, and that's what he says. When you walk, you, you make a spring. Other people get to drink. Other people get refreshment from that time. It's not about me and my pilgrimage. It's about the wake of blessing behind me on that pilgrimage. Very important. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. He's not afraid to call himself anointed. He's anointed with the oil of gladness. Spending time with Jesus, it just, it brightens, it clears up, you know. Uh, that anointing is, is like that oil being poured upon the, the, the priest's head or whoever was getting, you know, the prophet or whoever it might be. And that oil would come over their face and then the dry, I don't know if anybody knows how dry your hands got the last two days. You go outside and the, it just sucks the moisture right out. You come inside and you're just white, you know, kind of thing. Like, you know, well, that's the idea. These guys live in a desert. You know, just moisture being sucked out of you constantly. Imagine when someone would wash your feet. Oh, 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 you know, you've been dragging it through that silica, that sand, and it's just sucking the moisture out. And they put that water over and you're like, oh, you can just feel your, you know, just expanding again. You know, they all shrunk up from being dehydrated. When they pour that oil on your face, it's, it's a sealant. It's, a, it's like lotion, you know. And it makes your skin have its color again. And it, it, it makes you bright and shiny like you're supposed to be, like God intended you. Restores the oils and all that. And that's all he's saying. The, you look on the face of your anointed. When I, when I look at the Lord, when I spend time in Jesus, um, no matter what it is, I get anointed by him. His oil of gladness shines on my face and pours on my face and changes me. Not so dry and cracky, you know, worldly. Verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. And we know that song. Maybe if you don't, we'll sing it sometime. Uh, Better is one day in your courts. Anyway, I won't sing it. I won't torture you. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. You understand what he's saying there? I would rather just open the doors to the temple for people and be a servant all day long than to be the guest of honor, to be the one lounging with grapes being poured on, you know, pampered inside this, you know. You have a choice. You could be a doorman with a cap and that's all you do and everybody ignores you and nobody cares. If you don't open the door, that's what they get mad at you. And if you do open the door, they don't care. I would rather be there, he says, in your house than to be the one of honor in anywhere else. You know, it's far better to be a servant of God uh, than to be the subject of the attention. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he uphold or withhold, excuse me, from those who walk uprightly. Those are promises that I hope we hold on to this morning. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's full of grace and glory, and he's like a sun and a shield to those who follow him. Oh, Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. That's how he ends, you know. How do I conclude this song? What's the final thing we want to sing to God? It's just such a blessing to trust in God. It isn't a trial. It isn't a drudgery. It isn't a, oh, oh, you know, I've got to have to. Otherwise, I go to hell kind of thing. No, it's just such a beautiful place to be. It's a nest. It's in his temple. It's in his place of perfection for you. I hope you know that this morning. We have our communion now. The great segue into that. As they hand out the juice and the bread, we'll talk about it here. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he was having dinner with his disciples. And uh, the meal that they're eating was the Passover meal. Thank you. They were preparing it ahead of time and, and got the upper room. And there they were all having that Passover meal together and he explained the elements that they were indulging in that night, the part of the, part of the process. He didn't talk about the lamb. That's a whole different subject. But what he did talk about was the bread and the cup that were there. There was only one lamb at that meal, and that lamb was slain. And they were eating that lamb. Make no mistake about it. But then he said, as he take this, took the bread that they were eating, and he broke it. He gave thanks. He says, I want you to take and eat. As often as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. It was going to be his broken body, he said. And the next day, that's exactly what would happen, is he would be whipped and beaten and placed on the cross, his body broken and bruised, um, you know, cut and, and all. And it, he wanted his disciples to remember this, that when you eat of this, when you, when you partake of this bread, think of it as, we, and this gives us a little insight into the cross, you've participated in the cross in the sense that I have taken all of your guilt and shame at the cross. My body was broken. My the sentence that was passed onto you for your guilt and shame, for your sins, I took in place of you. And I want you to take that. I want you to own that. I don't want you to be reluctant to come to the cross to accept that forgiveness that was given to you there at the cross. I want you to participate. I want you to eat this bread and do this in remembrance of me. Don't ever forget that you can do that. For all of your sins, you bring them before the Lord and they are forgiven. And he's never tired of doing that. That's why he gives us this meal. 
wants to remind us of that. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, I want you to remember that my forgiveness for you is constant and bottomless. It's, 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 it's without end. As a believer and someone who trusts in the cross, I don't ever have to be reluctant. Like I've been to the cross 5,253 times in my lifetime. I'm not going again. He doesn't want that. That's why we do this continually. He gave us this. Bring your sins to the cross. Confess them before the Lord. Receive that forgiveness. Don't deny yourself the forgiveness that he's offering to you. Take it, he says. On the same night, he took the cup that they were drinking. He says, this is my new covenant with you. The, 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 my blood's going to be shed, and it's a new covenant, not the old covenant where if you do the right thing, then I'm going to do the right thing. No, this is when you do the wrong thing, I still do the right thing. My blood was shed instead of yours. And as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Not only is my guilt and shame passed to him, which we appreciate at the cross, he's also reminding us that his righteousness imputed to us. Two things are taking place there. And we need to know that every time we eat and drink. And I hope you remember that this morning. Now, Paul says, don't eat this and drink this in an unworthy manner. And here's what that means. It means you don't discern. You understand the cross. You understand the forgiveness of sins. You understand the, you can get righteousness imputed to you, but you don't believe it. You're just going to eat it anyway. You reject Christ by doing that. So it's better that you set it on the ground and don't do it. Then Paul continues and says, better yet, examine yourself this morning. Judge yourself. He's made you judges. We just read that today. Judge yourself. Sentence yourself guilty, and then let Christ pay for that guilt. That's what he wants. That's what he offers us this morning. We can receive that. Lord, we thank you for this bread and this cup. We know that we're sinners. We know that we come to the cross every day. We confess our sin to you. We ask for forgiveness. We receive the forgiveness that you freely give. We know that these sins deserved death, but that you took that death. We know that we're not righteous, and yet your righteousness is imputed to us. We thank you for both of these things. They're hard for us to understand. I don't know that we fully comprehend them, but we believe you because your word says so. We're not going by our feelings this morning. We're going by what your word says. And you said that you died for the sins of the world. We thank you for that. You also said that you've imputed your righteousness to those who believe, and we do. So we have it. We believe your word. Lord, bless these folks today with freedom, with love, with mercy, with grace, so that we can taste and see how good you are today, that we might be a blessing to those around us that need the same thing from us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, the truth, the understanding, but also the grace and the beauty of worship afterwards. I pray that you keep that in our hearts this week. I pray that you give us opportunities to share this with others, but also to live it out through circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. God, help us to remember your word this morning and to be doers of it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. We'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, have a great rest of the week.